Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and child, adolescent, and adult holistic psychiatrist. In these next two episodes, I'll talk about school shootings. I'll discuss the impact of these shootings from the victims, survivors, first responders, family and friends, school children around the country traumatized or becoming increasingly fearful by active shooter drills, and for all of us watching these events on screen media. I'll talk about the fairly consistent profile and path to violence of school shooters, and while I'll discuss perpetrator profiles, more broadly I'll discuss what looks like the deeper root causes from the individual level extending out to our culture and our laws. My intention here is to give a bigger picture by providing information that's not currently being discussed in the media. In the news, it appears that there are three prevailing arguments. One is that this is a problem primarily due to easy access to guns, and more specifically, guns that kill a lot of people very quickly. The second argument is about mental illness and a need for greater services and accessibility. The last argument is that these individuals, the perpetrators, are monsters who can't be stopped. With these arguments come three prevailing solutions. First, improve gun laws, which I'll discuss from the perspective of a mental health professional. This solution at best does not appear possible in the near future. The other solutions, increase mental health services and improve access, also appear unlikely in the near future, especially as the rates of mental illness are increasing. And the third solution being focused on is increasing school security and preparedness. I think this can feel like an easy solution and one that makes everyone feel better. However, I'll explain why this is not as impactful as we would like to think and the ways that it can actually be causing harm. Let me start with saying that the argument that this is a mental health issue does not mean that it is not a gun issue. If mental illness is a significant problem in this country that appears to be growing, then to me that seems a good argument for more gun laws, not less. Obviously, it is rare for someone with mental illness to become violent, but I do want to point out that the mental illness argument is an argument for more gun laws and not less. The mental health community, which I'll explain, is not powerful enough or large enough to stop this type of violence. Any mental health professional will tell you that when we are assessing someone's risk to self or others, it is important for us to know about access to weapons. If I'm seeing someone who may be suicidal or impulsively aggressive, I want to know if there are guns in the house. If someone is struggling with despair or impulsivity or mania or psychosis or alcohol or drug-induced behavioral changes and not meeting criteria for involuntary hospitalization, anything we can put between them and whatever they could use to harm themselves or others is the easiest step we can take. That doesn't mean that is all we do, but it can make the difference between life and death. The same could be said for gun laws. And again, many people who are violent aren't even making their way to mental health services. 
Another point I think most mental health professionals would agree with is that mental health services at their very best are not going to seek out, find, and treat everyone who poses a threat. There are violent individuals who may have depression, mania, psychosis, some with substance abuse, and some with personality disorders. Many of these individuals are not getting help. They may not have access, but they may. Sometimes people are paranoid, sometimes they are hopeless or so uncomfortable around people that they don't want to talk to anyone. And sometimes they get help and they still hit a rough spot in between appointments and treatment and do something violent. That's not to suggest that most people with mental illness are violent. This is a rare phenomenon, though it is, again, an argument being discussed in the media. Many of the school shooters recently had treatment. 78% told someone, which I'll discuss, about their plans. Mental health professionals are just part of the solution. This is going to take everyone, schools, friends, family, doctors, nurses, neighbors, people online, and yes, lawmakers that make it more difficult to access such lethal weapons. So what is a mass shooting? I'll be discussing the definition from the Violence Project. Four or more victims are murdered with firearms, including the offender, within one event, and at least some of the murders occurred in a public location or locations in close geographic proximity. And the murders are not attributable to any other underlying criminal activity or commonplace circumstance. For example, a bank robbery. The Violence Project is a database created by Drs. Jillian Peterson and James Dempsey and a number of other individuals who helped them. This work has been funded by the National Institute of Justice, the research arm of the Department of Justice. The database includes every mass shooting, so school shootings are mass shootings. However, their database includes every mass shooting since 1966, and that first incident was at my alma mater, University of Texas, when a shooter climbed the tower in the middle of campus and started shooting students below. This was given media attention and really is when we all consider these starting, though there were a handful of cases that predated this. Part of their database includes every shooting incident at schools, workplaces, and places of worship since 1999. So that's in addition to the mass shootings. And from that data, they have 133 school shootings and attempted school shootings from 1980 to 2019. In many cases, they spoke with family, friends, work colleagues, and teachers. And there were five mass shooters who they spoke to directly who had survived and were incarcerated. Their findings are in the book, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And on their website, you can access the full database. So to give a brief summary before I talk about the impacts, um, perpetrators, 76% were white, 98% were male. The average age was 15 to 16, and again, I'm talking about school shooters here. 
91% were current or former students at the school, and this becomes important when you consider how impactful or not impactful drills and security can be. These are not outsiders, they are insiders. Again, they are students typically of the school or former students. 80% were suicidal prior to the shooting, 78% leaked plans ahead of time, often there was a discipline record or a history of violence, and 50% of the shootings were targeted shootings, meaning they were specifically targeting someone, so the other 50% were not. As far as schools, 91% were public schools. There is data on when these shootings are more likely to occur. Most occur in the morning. The most common day is the 20th of the month, and this relates to the day that the shootings at Columbine occurred. And as I'll discuss when I talk more about the perpetrators, there is a great deal of copycat and study of former mass shootings. The most common time of the year is the beginning of school, after Christmas break, and at the end of the school year. There is even data on the impact of having an armed guard on the scene. So this was the case in 23 to 24% of the shootings. And the rate of death when there was an armed guard was 2.83 times greater in those schools than the schools when there was not an armed guard present. So no data suggests that there is an association between having an armed officer and a deterrence of violence. However, armed officers on the scene was the number one factor associated with increased casualties after the perpetrators' use of assault rifles and submachine guns. This is called the weapons effect. The presence of a weapon increases aggression. Many of these school shooters are actively suicidal, intending to die, so an armed officer may actually be an incentive rather than a deterrent. And the majority of shooters are students at the school, which would further draw into question the effectiveness of hardening security and active shooter drills, which I will be discussing. So I'd like to focus now on the impact of these school shootings. So the U.S. has had 2,032 school shootings since 1970, and these numbers are increasing. 948 school shootings have taken place since the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School in December of 2012. During COVID, there was a drop in school shootings, primarily because children were not in school for part of that time. However, school shootings have returned to pre-COVID levels and by some accounts have even increased. Since the attack on Columbine High School in 1999, nearly 300,000 students have been on campus during a school shooting. Since 1970, there have been 681 total recorded deaths from school shootings. However, because the database was through 2019, it's worth noting that the year 2021 was the most violent on record, with 193 people being killed or wounded in school shootings, not including the shooters themselves. There have been 145 victims in the first half of 2022, 
And this would include the 21 people killed at Uvalde and the 19 wounded. So to start with those who have survived, not all survivors will experience such horrific experiences in the same way. There are a number of of variables that can impact how we all process trauma. Having previous trauma or the presence of mental health issues can raise one's vulnerability, but also our genetically acquired biochemistry and physiology can make us more susceptible. The worst case scenario is when a person develops post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. This currently impacts 8% of the U.S. population. Rates can be as high as 36% of those who have survived a mass shooting. A third will develop acute stress disorder, which is a shorter-term condition than post-traumatic stress disorder. Symptoms can include high anxiety, avoidance of reminders of the trauma, emotional numbness, hypervigilance, flashbacks, nightmares, and intrusive memories of the trauma. If you've seen any interviews of the children or heard interviews of the children, you will hear some of these symptoms. I do question the wisdom of actually interviewing those children who I don't think can give proper consent at their age to be on the news and doing that. This is something, for example, when they become adults, they may not have made that same choice. So not only does trauma impact how safe we might feel in the world, it also can leave a mark on the body's stress response. And a person can stay stuck in this stress response, and this could be almost like a chronic fight-or-flight response or a shutdown or vacillating between either. The trauma can create a vigilance and an expectation that something bad is going to happen. And keep in mind, in the case of Uvalde, these physiologic impacts would be further impacted by the duration of their trauma. So 10 to 15 minutes would be horrific enough, but what sounds like was beyond an hour would have the potential for greater harm to that stress response and likelihood of PTSD. Keep in mind also that because children are still developing their sense of safety in the world and to an extent, their brain is still developing and their physiology and wiring is still developing, they can suffer more consequences from trauma. Many survivors can also suffer from survivors' guilt, feeling that they didn't do enough or feeling guilty even that they survived. So it's critical that victims feel connected to their families and communities in the aftermath of trauma and that they have ongoing support available to them. There are stages of healing, so it's important, again, to make sure that long-term support is in place if and when it could be needed. Also keep in mind that children and teens may be expected to return to the school where the trauma occurred and potentially expected to engage in lockdown and active shooter drills, something that I'll discuss And I'll mention, too, as it's being highlighted currently in the news, some schools are opting for a renovation or teardown 
of the school due to the collective trauma. Those who are close to this shooting can also develop PTSD. This could be from hearing another person's recounting, seeing facial expressions, hearing people in pain or terror, or after the shooting, seeing disfigured or dead bodies and seeing those injured and in pain. PTSD has been reported in up to 20% of first responders. Families of victims no doubt have grief and despair and can develop PTSD as well. For those of us exposed through media, there can be varying levels of anxiety and triggering even of PTSD symptoms, especially as these incidences are increasingly in public spaces and the list of spaces deemed unsafe for those who struggle with trauma, the number of places continues to grow. But I would say that for all of us, enough of this input from the news can shape the way we perceive the world. It can be important to stay informed, but also important to notice when the information is causing stress and knowing when to turn it off, knowing where that line is for each of us. Collective trauma does have the opportunity to create change, people pulling together to find solutions, but there is also the potential for groups to become increasingly divisive and a further deterioration in our trust of others. I intentionally skipped over children and teens in schools because I wanted to come back to that, and also because I think as impacted as we may be, we're nowhere as impacted as the child or teen who's going to school every day after having learned about these school shootings, heard adults discussing it, and repeatedly had active shooter drills or lockdowns that remind them that this could happen to them. So lockdown drills or active shooter drills are now used in more than 95% of schools and mandated in more than 40 states. However, there is no federal guidance on exactly how these drills should be run, so there is quite a bit of variation and controversy about this. In recent years, overzealous tactics have emerged, like shooting teachers with plastic pellets, simulating gunfire, and using fake blood, even at times it not being clear that these are drills and not actual shootings. For-profit companies sell their own preparedness programs to schools, despite limited evidence for the effectiveness of these companies' particular approaches. The most recognized player in this area is Alice, the largest for-profit provider of active shooting training in the U.S. Some students have reported feeling traumatized after drills, though others have said that it makes them feel a sense of empowerment, even though with that sense of empowerment, they feel less safe in school. There are a number of arguments on this issue, and many experts will say that if we're stuck living in a society where there are and will be more school shootings, then schools have to deal with school shooter drills. However, they need to be more conscious of how they're being executed 
and take steps to prevent needless harm. There has not been a lot of research in this area yet. There was a study out of Georgia Tech where they analyzed social media posts before and after drills in 114 schools across 33 states. And the researchers found that the drills were associated with increases in depression, stress, anxiety, and physiologic health problems for students, teachers, and parents, and suggested leaders rethink their school's reliance upon them. To quote that study, we provide the first empirical evidence that school shooter drills in their current unregulated state negatively impact the psychological well-being of entire school communities. Because they were evaluating social media posts, I think it's obvious that these would not necessarily be looking at the impacts on the youngest of children that are being impacted by these drills. The Violence Project, which I've mentioned that I've used much of their data, showed no difference in the number of people killed or injured when comparing those with lockdown drills and those that didn't have them. Some experts argue that the drills may actually be counterproductive because most school shooters, again, tend to be current or former students in the school. The drills, they argue, might spark socially contagious behavior, and this would be where an individual who is vulnerable may develop an increasing fascination with school shootings due to these drills. I'll talk about that more when I discuss the pathway to violence. As far as potential perpetrators, they are gaining a lot of information that could be helpful to them in their shooting. A lot of groups are announcing an opposition to various aspects of these drills from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, And I should say they're not necessarily saying absolutely don't have these drills. Some are arguing that students shouldn't be involved in the drills. Uh, Others are arguing that accommodation should be made for students who have a history of trauma or who otherwise may be at risk. Some are suggesting parents be given notice and others are insisting that simulations of actual shootings should be eliminated. One year ago, the National Association of School Psychologists, along with the National Association of School Resource Officers and the Safe and Sound Schools Program, released their own guidance on school lockdown drills, recommending, among other things, getting parental permission and training staff to recognize signs of trauma. Aside from individual cases of trauma, I think it's worth noting that we are rearing now a population of children who will have fear and that that will have its consequences in the next 20 to 40 years when these children are making decisions for our country. And as individuals, we don't want to be making decisions for ourselves using fear-based thinking, nor do we want our decisions for our country to be based in fear. Just to circle back on this issue of how the news media is impacting our collective fear, 
I'll just offer a personal anecdote. In my own life, there came a time, and actually I was cooking dinner and listening to a television that was on top of my refrigerator and listening to horrific stories on the news and realized how very lucky I was to have a peaceful life in a safe home and that I wasn't appreciating it because in my mind, I was frequently living in a world of threat. So I turned off the television and I actually took it off the refrigerator and then subsequently um, had the cable company remove cable. Not that I expect everyone to do that. But now I instead check the news on the computer a few times a day and I allow my mind to spend less time going from atrocity to atrocity around the world and spend more time enjoying the very fortunate life that I do have and spend more of my mental energy trying to help the very small part of the universe that I can, something that I was unable to do when I felt overwhelmed and stressed with input coming in from the news. No less of an issue than the stress that can be created by the constant influx of tragedy is that we can become numb by the repeated news stories. And this is extremely problematic if, as a collective, we are becoming numb to the pain of others. So are the perpetrators monsters, or are they people who can be stopped? What mass shooters do, including school shooters, is horrific. We should not be able to wrap our mind around this. It is not consistent with our humanity. So I'm not doing these two podcasts to make excuses for school shooters. However, I do want to point out that words like monster or evil won't solve this problem. They will make it harder for us to see the person that is in our school, in our neighborhood, and in our family. In order to intervene, we need to understand the pathway to violence. And it appears to be a consistent pathway for school shooters. Each part of that pathway has potential intervention points. And I'll be discussing more of this in the next podcast. However, the beginning of the pathway is typically a childhood trauma, which seems to be the foundation. This could be violence in the home, sexual assault, parental suicide, or extreme bullying. Building on this trauma can be hopelessness, despair, isolation, self-loathing, and rejection from peers. There is then an identifiable crisis point where behavior changes. The perpetrator seems to be acting differently. They most often start to discuss their plans and or suicidal thoughts. We don't think of these as suicides, but when we do we have more potential points, again, of intervention. And relative to traditional suicides, the self-hate is turned toward a group. So with this, there can also be a quest for justice, for power, but also notoriety, fame, and even a sense of meaning and purpose. In the next podcast, I'll discuss this pathway in more detail and areas for intervention. Ending school shootings will require effective leadership, gun laws, and a deeper understanding. As we take in these news stories, we all have a choice to turn to fear or to turn to connection. 
Schools have the choice to terrify children and turn school buildings into fortresses or to wisely address security and create resources to build community, relationships, trust, and a sense of responsibility for one another. This is not easy to do when we're blasted with divisive and fear-inducing messages over our screens. This obviously isn't just about school shootings. It's about all the multifaceted challenges we face. If you know someone, perhaps an educator, a parent, a lawmaker, or a health professional, who you think can benefit from this and the next podcast, please consider sharing. And if generally you think this information is helpful and want to help me get this out into the world, please consider sharing, commenting, liking on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram. I do have a website, CourtneySnyderMD.com, where I address root causes of brain-related symptoms, and you're welcome to subscribe there if you'd like to be notified of future podcasts. Until we connect on another podcast, and hopefully the next one that relates to this topic, I will look forward to connecting with you then. Take care. Bye-bye.